welcome to Inside the Hive. This is Nick Bilton, your host, with still with a cold and bronchitis and all that stuff, but hang in there. I'm not going to cough this week. I have an amazing guest who wrote an incredible book that I actually devoured an entire plane ride. Yancey, you want to introduce yourself? You want to tell people who you are? Sure, yeah. Uh, that's not the game. That's not the show. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so my, my, my name is Yancey Strickler. Uh, I've written a book that came out just a few weeks ago called This Could Be Our Future, A Manifesto for a More Generous World. In a previous life, I'm a co-founder of Kickstarter and was the CEO of that for a few years. And then in a previous life before that, I was a music critic. A music, that, that was probably the most yeah. fascinating part for the book for me. So you and I have met years and years and years ago. Yeah. We haven't seen each other in a long time. We both look a little older. Um, the book, it's so funny because uh, um, I actually heard about the book through a friend who's an economist who is kind of struggling with the same thing we're all struggling with right now around capitalism and democracy and and the world that we live in, not just of Trump, but of economics. And uh, and I found – what I found so fascinating – so you, you structure the book in two parts. It's part one, which is the the mess that we have created, that now. we are currently living in. <laughs> yeah. uh, and then part two is a solution. And so I want – I'd like to structure this podcast a little bit like that and talk a little bit about the mess. Um, tell me how you kind of first got to this and what this realization was. Um, and then I want to talk about this. It seems like to me as I've read the whole thing and also other – topics similar to this and listen to shows and things about this this topic it seems to me that we really fucked this whole thing up like since reagan came into power to now like reagan just destroyed the whole thing yeah pretty much yeah and then we didn't regain any kind of plot after that either you know it was the end of history like in 91 there's the francis fukuyama book like we've done it (laughs) this is it we've reached the summit and then like 10 years later 9 11 happens but that's that's another story uh yeah, I mean, the, the first half of the book is about um, what I believe is like the default setting behind a lot of how the world has changed the past few decades, and I call that financial maximization, which is just the implicit belief that the only right choice in any decision is whichever option makes the most money. And we think that this has been there forever. We think that maybe this is synonymous with capitalism or this is just how things have always been. But in the book, I argue that this is like a kind of a fundamentalist mindset that there's a moment in time where it entered our world and the way society and, and companies behaved changed as a result of that. And uh, and so I think it's that's the why behind a lot of the different things. I, I first... I first saw this uh, when I was living in New York in the Lower East Side, and I watched uh, Mars Bar, which is like a you know a, a, a neighborhood landmark, kind of an anti landmark. This dive bar with like ugly spray paint on the outside, on where the for years you couldn't go in if you were like a lawyer or a Wall Street banker. Yeah, if you like look that. halfway normal, you get yelled at. Like I, I went in there once with a friend, you know, you get yelled at. <laughs> no, no, but I was just you know they were probably they probably just felt too too much pity on me, looking so scared <laughs> in the corner. Uh, but it got torn down and replaced by. So I've been there thirty years. Center of the punk scene got torn down and replaced by a TD Bank. And at the time, there were four other TD banks within a 15-minute walk of that same corner. They're just everywhere. And as someone who lived in the neighborhood, I just thought, in what, in what universe does this make sense? Like how – what could justify a choice like this? Like this isn't everyone being crazy. There's some perspective where this makes sense. And that sort of put me on this, on this trail. So one of the things you talk about in the book is uh, – which I went and looked up after, afterwards – is this kind of – this moment where Milton Friedman, the economist, writes this essay in the New York Times 
that essentially argues that the shareholder is the most important person. Everything has to kind of go up the up the food chain to that person, and it has this fundamental shift on the way businesses work. So, can you explain a little bit about how it worked before this essay and how it worked afterwards? And if you do, you believe that this was like the defining moment that gave an excuse for all these people to make even more money? Yeah, I, I think I definitely think it was a moment. Um, in the decades before, there's this economist, William Lazenick, who's written these papers about this. But in the decades before, American companies operated according to a philosophy called retain and reinvest, where the idea is you keep your employees as long as possible. You are pushing them into the new product lines you're developing. You're doing all sorts of retraining. You're investing a lot in R&D. And like, this is just how companies are run. And in the 1950s and 60s, and companies ran that way, I think, in part because they were there was a competition between capitalism and communism to determine what was the best way society should work. And really, like the scoreboard of that contest was which which society could produce the middle biggest middle class, which one could best like just make a place worth living. And so companies were really sort of focused on that same goal too. Like that was part of being patriotic, was being civic. And so there's all these ways that you could see how companies operated that way. And then at the end of the 60s, the Vietnam War was... But part, yeah. of it's, part of this is also based on like Adam Smith's thinking about how the, you know, the butcher will make sure his... his Food is the best because it's important for his business, right? It's, it, it goes back to the fundamentals of that, right? Yeah, totally. I mean, it's still based in the idea that, like, everyone's operating according to the rational self-interest. But there was this – but I think there was also a notion of a collective interest that kept companies sort of adhering to a certain line. Um, but, you know, the Vietnam War happens. The, the beginning of the 1970s, you have, like, the oil shocks and stagflation. And basically, the way the economy had been working starts to break down. And people are looking for answers. And Milton Friedman has this very sexy, alluring idea, which is like the very basic, simple thing to do is just to maximize for profit. And the only way to think about that is according to share price and what shareholders are going to get. And there's a couple interesting you know, tricks here. One is that he says that it's shareholders that are the client to be thought about. It's not customers, employees, communities. Like that's a, that's a choice right there on its own. But that's insane. I mean, yeah. it, it, don't people think it's insane back then? Well, the idea was that, um, you know, that's the most productive use of capital because if you give it to a shareholder, they're going to reinvest it into another company. And so then that's what will produce the greatest prosperity. Like this, this is kind of the core mindset is that if you concentrate money, if you financially maximize, and that ends up being a small number of people holding that money, that's what will produce the greatest prosperity. And the other side of it was? And then on the other side of it is, uh, is you know, divesting, you know, just, just laying people off. Um, in the book I talk about, I, I showed like this effect where from 1948 to 1973, the wages of the average American worker grew by 90 plus percent. The lowest paid worker got the biggest raise. From 1973 to 2013, the average American worker got a 10% raise uh, adjusted for inflation. And the CEOs. And the CEOs got a thousand percent raise from that same time. Seeing the graph is kind of mind boggling. Yeah, and it it does take place right around the time that Friedman posts. Yeah, there's just a moment where the way, like, there was a record scratch moment where the way everyone thought things should operate just wasn't working. This is when the U.S. moved away from the gold standard. There's a lot of economic resets that happen around this moment, and they're looking for a new, simpler way. And so the idea of just maximizing for share price something that's rational, that's tradable, that you know you can very clearly argue for, just was a very. It just seemed. It seemed 
rational, just the obvious thing to do. It started slowly, um, but by the 80s, like that's really starting to run America, especially with Reagan's deregulations in the early 80s really opened the floodgates and really geared all of the levers of, of government towards the growth of just top-level financial growth, not thinking about how that money is going to be distributed, whereas in the 50s and 60s, the thought was like, let's grow the middle class. Now it's just like, be Scrooge McDuck and make the biggest pile you can. So I, I was going to keep this question to, till the end, but I can't stop <laughs> myself from asking okay, this. Okay, great. So I, when I was reading your book, I, you talk about how like this this hasn't been around very long, right? Yeah. It really hasn't. It's 50 yeah. years or so. Um, and and I think thought a lot about the, I don't mean to and, you know bring in the, the ghost of Steve Jobs, but there, there is one moment I think that for me that... I always think about with him, and it's this—it's that saying when he's he, this video where he's got a, his his thick beard, he's like younger, is in his thirties or something, and he talks about this realization he has that um, that the world that we live in was created by people that were no smarter than us, and that you once you get this realization that you could change that, it changes everything. And the part that I don't understand is we. We're all sitting around. Every person I talk to is like the economy's broken. You know, Jeff Bezos should not be should not have one hundred and forty billion dollars, and fifty million people are living below the poverty line. Like th- there is a clear example. There's a million of these things of the shareholder value compared to companies going bankrupt like Sears and Yahoo and all these different things that are happening. Why is it that society isn't like out with the pitchforks trying to make a change? Well, I think other societies maybe are. You know, maybe Chile, you see people are trying to do more. Maybe in France, you saw, you know, there there is some voice coming up. In the U.S., the voice is, is fairly mute. Um, what is your theory for why that is? I mean, uh, it's it's the, the comfort of hyper-individualism. You know, it's that we're all kind of waiting for someone else to go first. Hmm. And we're all just sitting here. And it's easier to not do something than it is to do something. So I think that there's something in the culture and, you know, the, the 80s were called the me generation, you know, and I think it's sort of been that point that we've lost that. And it's, you know, it seems to be coming, um, you know, but things we find a hard time changing this because it takes political will to change a lot of those levers. And then really to move beyond capitalism, you need, you're like, well, then what is it? What is it you're working towards then? And and there we've struggled to articulate an answer of like, well, it's just different, you know, but like really what, you know, what would be done differently? And so that's, you know, it's a hard thing to imagine when you're in a world where everything is made up of that. The thing I found so fascinating, um, well, a million things that I found fascinating, is there's this moment uh, in the book where you talk about right after you talk about Milton Friedman's uh, essay, uh, and then there's this thing that's kind of invented called the credit card. Yeah. And, you know, uh, in 1990, it, it quickly spikes. We have $55 billion in credit card debt as a nation, and now it's over a trillion. And it seems like that, you you say it in the book, like that became the raise. Yeah. And at some point, have there been moments when it's almost collapsed or mm-hmm. are we actually finally getting to that point now? It seems like 2008 was maybe the closest, you know? I mean, that, um, but in reality, we just, you know, just printed money to, to fill in the cracks so that the system could keep going because it was too scary to confront what would happen if... You know, I, I don't know if, if the financial system disappeared as we know it. But, you know, I, uh, 
Yeah, I mean that moment, like showing how in the in the book, I call it the mullet economy, where you know it's business in front for ninety percent of people, you know, no raises, layoffs, increasing job insecurity, and then for the top one to ten percent, it's that party in the back. But you know, it's that 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 delta of credit card debt, like that's that's how we've that's how we've made it work. That's how people have patched it together. A trillion dollars in outstanding credit card debt right now, and for the people on top, it, it makes sense because it's a lot more profitable to make people borrow their raises and get it back with interest than it is to just pay people for it. When you're researching the book um, and you're coming across all of these instances of, of, of clear moments where you're starting to see the, the triangle flip upside down, um, were there moments that people were talking about as this was happening where they were like, no, don't do this. This is a really bad idea. Or is everyone just like, oh, this makes sense because the people – who are in charge say it makes sense. Yeah, you have voices like maybe Ralph Nader, you know, you, you, you had people, you know, uh, Dennis Kucinich, you know, I mean, you've had, you've had political voices that have been seen as very fringe um, that have said, hey, if we're following, if we're continuing along this path, like, are we really clear we want to end up where this is going? But, you know, it's just been a good time. Everyone's just been having a good time. You know, it's like it's the, the Bush the Bush years. That's just like boozy lunches and making as much money as you can and not thinking about consequences. And that, you know, and that culturally that has added up. So talk a little bit about stock buybacks because that for me was truly fascinating where you see this – for one point in time, buybacks are illegal. Yeah. You can't do them. Yeah. Uh, and, and now, you know – if you look at the stock, you know, Trump always touts the stock market and how well it's doing, but all the money that it's making is going straight into stock buybacks. Apple is spending billions and billions of dollars on stock buybacks and you don't have to pay the taxes on the dividends and all these things like that. And one moment you talk about, which uh, actually made me pretty angry, was Sears. You know, mm. there was a point in time where Sears and Yahoo were like these staple companies, specifically Sears. But they, as these companies are going bankrupt and they're laying off hundreds of thousands of employees, they're spending six, eight billion dollars on stock buybacks. How does this become that, how is it legal? Like yeah. how is it anything? I don't It's about it's it's about it's about making capital productive. It's about getting return on investment. You know, the, the reason why Sears spends that money on buybacks is actually like a generation or two before where you know, a Bain consulting, you know, someone, some sort of private equity firm or somebody's buying these companies, laying them down, laying them, you know, just weighing them down with all this debt that they used to buy it. And then the companies are forced to sell off assets, shrink, and then ultimately go into a death spiral. But it's just basically a, just a money extraction machine. And so that's the point. It's, it's, it is, it is doing its, its expected job according to what we think of as the, the purpose of money today. And, but aren't people, if I'm, I mean, it's like when you look at the numbers, right? The number of people who benefited from that and the number of people who were harmed by it yeah. <laughs> far outweigh yeah. each other. I mean, we, it's yeah. funny, like you talk about, everyone's talking now about billionaires and how, um, how much they suck. And uh, there's only 607 billionaires in the United States. There's 330 million people. Like, why should they decide, the 607 decide, the, you know, what the conversation is about? Like, aren't there people in these companies that are saying, hey, this is not the right thing to do? Or is it just that it has become a societal norm 
and they think that that's what they're supposed to do. I think now we've gotten to a point where it's a norm, where people aren't really seeing that the choice, the choices they're making. Um, you know, those 607 billionaires and, and others have also spent a ton of money to ensure the political system produces the outcomes they want. I talk in the book about how there's a paper where um, these political scientists look at every election since 1980 and have found that basically every election except for one, they could predict the exact results simply by knowing how much money each person had raised. So money is like a, a direct one-to-one -one predictor of what will happen in an election. So, you know, the power structure is working for those people. And also they've done a really good job of keeping the rest of us divided. You know, we disagree about so much, you know, our, our, our inability to come together around anything is insane. You know, we, we imagine that like aliens landing will bring us together, but that that's like three minutes. That's yeah, three yeah, minutes before yes. it's the hot takes of everything else. On top of that, the fact that the aliens landed, we forget about the whole thing. And it's just about riffing on that for like the next three weeks. And we'll, we can do that to anything at this point. So um, when you talk about the, in the book, the, the political side of things and how much money has, has affected who stays in power and, yeah. um, and so on and the amount of money they spend. Uh, I mean, look, Mitch McConnell, for example, like the, the lowest... Uh, rating of any senator uh, in entire Congress and yet, you know, gets so much money from the Republican super PACs and so on that he's able to continue to stay um, the lowest rated senator. Yeah, and and do you think that there's any of this is going to change or do you think that society has to, has to demand it? Well, I think... I mean, well, I don't think anything changes, quote unquote, naturally. I mean, I think it always comes from a demand coming from some direction. Um, you know, one of the big, really, themes of the book is that the world is always changing in significant ways. It's hard to recognize the direction in which it's changing, but I'm sure it will evolve significantly from where we are now. The question is, will it be to something that is much worse, or will it be to, towards something that is better than what we have now? Um, but I, you know, I, I think that... You know, there's a case that what we're seeing now is, you know, the, the demographic shifts of America will produce a very different kind of electorate. And we are seeing the electorate that's defined America up until this point trying to hold on to power still. And that tr those transitions of power are always really contentious and shaky and scary. And that could be what we're going through now. Um, but, you know, I also think that like solutions emerge in response to acute problems and probably things have to get bad enough for people being willing to consider radical ideas enough for, for things to move beyond an incrementalism in one direction or the other. But, you know, where we are now, we've been on this path for so long, we just no longer even think of it as a decision. Like this, the status quo we live in isn't just how things are. We think it's how things are supposed to be, how things will always be. Um, and so we're trying to win a game that can't really be won. So I'm glad that you brought up the game because you talk about in the book um, the Rand Corporation yeah. uh, developing game theory as a response to um, the Soviets versus the U.S. and the Cold War and, and, and so on. It Whatever happens, it works. Uh, prisoner's dilemma, so on and so forth. I'm going to let you get into that so you can explain it because I know you need to explain that before we can get to the solution. Yeah. Um, and they apply it to business. And it kind of essentially creates a world where business becomes every man for himself rather than from the community. So talk a little bit about this. Yeah, I mean, it's a, the Rand Corporation was like the R&D department. Uh, 
uh, that works with, worked at the Defense Department, and it was a lot of super smart scientists, and they were supposed to figure out what the U.S. should do facing the Soviet Union with like a nuclear standoff. And so they devised this very clever mathematical structure where they would just run iterations, basically in-person algorithms to just like run through every machine learned or human learned iteration of what might the outcomes of a decision like this be. Um, and what and what the overall lesson was uh, of all these explorations was, was that the ideal goal was to maximize your personal self-interest. You're always looking to maximize your self-interest. So it's just a question of how you're going to go about doing it. So in one of the examples they do called Prisoner's Dilemma, um, you and a friend are, have been arrested. You're put into separate interrogation. Let's pretend me and you have yeah, been arrested. Yeah, we, we robbed a bank. Okay. Uh, we're put in separate interrogation rooms. Uh, our producer here is the cop, and he, he offers us each a separate deal at the, roughly the same time that says, listen, if Yancey, if you rat out on Nick, if you say that it's all his idea, you're going to go free and he's going to go to jail for three years. But you should know before you decide that I'm giving him the same deal and that he can choose to rat you out. Now, if you both, if you both stay silent, you're both going to go to jail you know, for just one year. But what are you going to do? What are you going to do? Would you, I would rat you <laughs> yeah, out. Yeah, yeah, as fast as possible. <laughs> yeah, because who gives a shit? Uh, yeah, in most, you know... In most cases, we would think of like, let's be loyal to each other. We just robbed a bank together. That suggests- We know where the money's hidden. Yeah, exactly. There's there's some reason to hold us together. Uh, but the idea of game theory t- tells you that the ideal outcome is to maximize your own personal self-interest, which means the right answer is to rat you out. That That's the choice that maximizes my now me. And so I rat you out, you rat me out, and we both go to jail for a year. Yes. Rather than if we would have stayed silent, we could have gotten away. Something like that. There's a math. There's a math where basically the optim, the, the truly optimal outcome is is both of us looking out for each other. Mm. But what are the chances of that happening? How how well can you trust that person? I don't trust what, you. I'm going to rat you out. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So, but this is sort of uh, imagining, projecting upon the world the idea that we're kind of all in these interrogation booths. We're all only thinking about now me. The the, the needs and desires of everyone else is a mystery to us. So you can imagine that we're all just yeah, we're just like in these telephone booths, unable to see anything, and that our job is just to make everything inside the tele- telephone booth as awesome as possible. And that's sort of like game theory's idea of how to live life. But but before game theory comes about, well, so there's two things. One is I, I, they, when they do these game theory experiments and they first A-B test them on the receptionists yeah. at Rand Corporation, the receptionists all look out for each other. Yes. And so it doesn't necessarily, the hypothesis doesn't always ring true. No. So what, how their, does that- Their answer, yeah, the first people to play this game were the, were the receptionists, the secretaries, the Rand Corporation, and they overwhelmingly chose to be loyal to one another. To which the scientists said, "You're, you know, you're not playing rationally." Um, but I think they they are playing rationally. They're playing rationally according to their values, rather than these self-maximizing values that the Rand scientists saw as being the natural truth. But for someone else, that's a, that's a value choice by you. So if you ask the Wall Street banker, they're not going to think about everyone else. They're going to think about themselves, right? Yes. Yes. And so. Does everyone now just become a Wall Street banker and no one's a receptionist anymore? Or how does what's happened that has made it so we all believe that we have to just think out for, think for ourselves? Yeah, I mean the idea the idea became pervasive. That assumption became pervasive. Um, we're not born with it. We're not born with it. We're we're taught it. Um, in the in the book, I write about experiment where some people were given the the prisoner's dilemma game, but they were told it was called the Wall Street game, and then later they were given the same game and told it was called the community game. So it's the same exact game, same exact two different game, names. Just two different names, and the results were exactly the opposite. But in both cases, if you think about it, the person is 
acting rationally. I'm playing the Wall Street game. Do I rat you out? Yeah, I rat you out. Like it's Wall Street. That's the value set. The community game. Do I rat you out? No, this is the community game. Like we stay true to each other. So even even how we label the games, what we tell people the rules of the games are, greatly impact what we'll do. It was the same thing just with a different name. You're listening to Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you love digging into the week's political headlines, subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our reporters take you behind the scenes of some of the biggest stories from the campaign trail to the halls of Congress. Just for our Inside the Hive listeners, save 15% on a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair with promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off one year of all you can read, watch, and hear. So a question I have is, you you have these instances like the naming of a game, for example, and it changes the outcome of the game. And you talk about at one point how in certain countries there's like a 100% uh, rate of people donating organs and in other countries it's like 6%, right? Yeah. And in those – and some of them are neighboring countries. Like they're with the same ideals and values and so on. And it turns out that the ones where 100% of people or 90-something percent of people donate their organs is because it's an opt-in. So you have, I mean, it's opt out. So you're already opted in and you, and you have to actually press a little button on a box to say, I don't want my organ, my organ being donated if I get in a car accident. How much of, of the society we live in today is like a user interface problem? Yeah. Do you yeah. see what I'm saying? Like, yeah. it's like the labeling and the opt-ins and the opt-outs and like, it, it's what's, what's interesting is you talk, you talk about how this started to kind of go downhill in like the 1970s, 1980s with Reagan. And look, I think Reaganomics is one of the most disastrous things to have taken place in this country since slavery. Um, but I think that at the same time, there's this other thing that you and I know a lot about, which is called technology. Yeah. And how much does that play into the biases that we, you know, like think about, for example, um, uh, the difference between like Snapchat and uh, Instagram videos. Instagram videos are 15 seconds. Snapchats are 10 seconds. Like the the things that you create, like some are private, some are public. Just these little tiny tweaks can change everything. And I'm curious what you think if if technology has played a role in putting us in the world that we're in today. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, we are... It's interesting to be seeing you here in meat space versus <laughs> versus you know the world I'm used to, which is yeah. I mean, it's it's the the degree to which everything is through digital interfaces had an enormous impact. I mean, I still feel like we are very early in in the history of this in a way. Like uh, I, or at least I hope so. I, I hope we haven't reached the end of history of the internet, where it's just a face, Facebook forever, bad. Facebook and Google forever. I mean, sure, it could get a lot worse, I guess. Uh, but yeah, I mean, the, these these UIs, these defaults that we operate within. I mean, we all have so much shit to think about. We're grateful every time someone helps us out with something. Um, but yeah, it also feels like we we've been auto subscribed to a lot of newsletters that we can't get rid of, and and Donald Trump's like the notification that we can't turn off, and uh, and it really affects us on a yeah you know, on a societal level and on a personal level. So we now have these talks in Congress around the Green New Deal, and you know we've got AOC who um, I think is emblematic of the fact that we think that there's something wrong with society as far as financially, and, and Bernie Sanders and things like that. Um, 
it seems like maybe it's not this election, maybe it is, um, but we are kind of coming to a turning point where we have to kind of make a decision about what we want as a society, especially from a capitalist society point of view. Um, so I have, I have two questions. One is, do you think when you kind of look at the world we live in today that capitalism does or does not work, right? I mean, we talked a little bit about communism mm-hmm. in the beginning, and sure, it worked on paper. And I have friends that lived in Russia during communism, and they explained how for for three minutes it worked. And then right. people were like, oh, I don't want to do that work. I'll give you a pack of chewing gum if you do it for me. And now I've got to go get the chewing gum and, and so on. But I guess the so the first part of this question is, do you think that looking at the history of the world we live in today, that capitalism does work? And if does or does not, and if so, what is the what is the thing that we can do to fix this? Yeah, I, I think it works up into a point. Um, you know, I think that there's, uh, but it, you know, it works when it's counterbalanced by other forces. It's it works when it's counterbalanced by a strong state. It works where it's counterbalanced by um, you know a, a bare living minimum being provided to citizens. Uh, it works great on top of other things. When we are allowing it and asking it to guide all activity as it's really happening in the United States, as all of capitalism's competitors have just been killed one by one. Communism dies, you know, regulation in large part dies, you know, just unions die. Like lots of things have pushed back against that uh, or that, that were a check on that have, have largely disappeared. Um, and so, you know, I think that uh, it, on its own, it just becomes it becomes like the worst of its company, just a lazy fat monopolist that just wants to rent seek, that doesn't want to change, that just becomes bloated and really doesn't serve much purpose, um, and that it ultimately needs to be pushed by other ideas. And, I, and I, yeah, so so you're saying essentially like before the deregulation that happened with Reagan and and Bush and Trump and so on, before uh, the the changes in the laws of you know. Of just thinking about the shareholder um, before all that stuff, it did work and broke. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I can't say that everything it did with was just, but I feel like as a organizing principle for for how a society should function, yeah. I mean, I think I think it it's done as best we've seen. I don't I don't think that's like the best it can be. I don't think it's the best it can ever be. Um, but I feel like that was successful. Like that is a balancing force, balance against other forces is is like what a society needs. The problem is when you have a single value sort of rule over everything else, because inevitably it will begin ruling in domains that it, it does, has no right to rule. Um, so you start making healthcare decisions based on financial outcomes and things like that, like we have today. You have to have this balance of forces at the high end that create that pressure. And we have like optimized and measured ourselves into a world where we're as rich as hell and no one has anything, you know? And so one of the problems is that we apply value only as a monetary thing, right? right. And so this goes back to the creation of the GDP, right? Yeah. Where, um, what years was it? it was 1936 was GDP was first proposed. And when it was proposed, it's like, oh, this is a good idea. You know, we'll, we'll, we'll look at the, uh, the GDP of countries and we'll kind of, that's the value that we apply to them. But as you point out, uh, that doesn't take into consideration the mom who stays at home from work and looks after a kid or the, the, the person who writes a poetry book or, or, or even that $1,000 spent on a family vacation and $1,000 spent on a divorce attorney are counted as the same, right? You know, like val- economic value is a, is a counting step. 
It's a counting stat. It's not a qualifying stat. It's, it's, not, it's not trying to make any sort of judgment. And that's one of the things that's so convenient about money is that, you know, we were once a world that was ruled by moral senses of values. And these are things that, like, Aristotle would have a two-week debate with somebody about. And that was, like, pretty complicated. It's hard, to, it's hard to translate across cultures because all culturally we have different values. And then suddenly price and financial value becomes this amazing transformation of this, like, assessment of goodness into something that people can touch and hold and you can trade, you can grow. And so the shift of that moral value to a rational quantifiable value is what has allowed money to rule. And and it does it for like reasons that make all kinds of def- all kinds of sense. But, you know, I I don't think that's where the story ends. I think that money is the first tra- the first value we've learned to transition from sort of moral into a rational space, but I don't think it's the last. And, and that's what I think is the opportunity uh, that's in front of us, is to think about, um, you know, we know that the needs of the future are important. Like we look at the climate crisis, we keep trying to solve the climate crisis, but we're looking for solutions that like make our now me better. And which is just not the case. The climate crisis is a, has been a future us problem for a while, but we haven't been able to conceive of that as like a real space. We can't make decisions for it because like, what are we making decisions for? It's just the, this hazy thing. So what would it mean to make that uh, more rationally understood, to define what it meant to say, make a decision that helped the, the reduction of carbon in the atmosphere to potentially put a metric to it, or at the very least make it to that we all broadly agree and our institutions are oriented around the idea that this must be something we factor into every choice because it's a part of our reality. Um, And so, you know, I I make, you know, lay out a case for how this would happen and and a philosophy called Bentoism that I think is the foundation for that to occur. But I just look at the success of money as it's, it's it's a very convenient translation of moral value into something that is very translatable, very movable. And I just think that that's, that's not the only way that will happen. So talk a little bit about this idea of Bentoism. So uh, it's this philosophy that doesn't look at me now. It looks at kind of us in the future. Explain it, how, how you see it working. Yeah, so, I, you know, so I've been working on this book for a while. And, um, and one day was – while I was writing, I would like spend three weeks on the computer just writing on my computer. And then I would spend one week where I'd print out everything I'd written. I would like physically cut out passages I liked. I would also spend days drawing just as a way to like loosen my brain. Um, and one day I drew uh, a hockey stick graph, you know, the Silicon Valley hockey stick graph where the line of this, whatever your self-interest is is just sloping up and to the right. And as I – looked at it, it just occurred to me that the x-axis representing time, it kept going from now into the future. So I like drew that line out farther. The y-axis representing self-interest, it also keeps going, goes from me to us. Like I just thought as as our self-interest grows, like we also have to think about other people. So I made that line bigger. And suddenly I had this chart where this hockey stick was just like a tiny slice of this bigger picture. And I ended up drawing a box around it and sort of lines through it, making it like a two by two graph. And I just thought, what what is this a graph of? And I wrote down underneath it, beyond near-term orientation. And I realized that was an acronym for bento. And I thought, hmm. oh, it's a, it's a bento box. It's hmm. the four boxes of a bento box. And I just, I'd recently read something about the bento, the fact that, uh, you know, the bento is, always provides like a balanced meal, not too much of any one thing. And it also honors this Japanese dieting philosophy called hadahachibu, 
which says the goal of a meal is to be 80% full. That way you're still hungry for tomorrow. So I just thought, oh, this is like a bento box for how I think about my self-interest. It's not trying to maximize for right now. It's allowing me to still have room for tomorrow to think about these other spaces. So looking at a bento, um, you're seeing your now me self-interest, like what game theory says is our self-interest. But you also see your future me, the older, grayer version of yourself that made all the right choices, like what they tell you is right, what they want you to do. You think about in the top left, you're now us, the people that you rely on and that rely on you, your families, friends, coworkers, and then your future us, the next generation, your children, everybody else's children too. So every choice we make impacts all these spaces, impacts now me, future me, now us, future us. All those spaces factor into our choices. But in the world we live in today, now me is the only space we see as real. Everything else is emotional, hazy, nebulous. And we really struggle to think about those things. And so Bentoism is, a, is like a helpful tool um, that sort of puts those things in your mind, builds a muscle memory to that. But I also think makes a sort of a philosophical case um, for new areas to dig for, for defining value. That financial value is what rules now means, what orders our society now, but what is the value that should be ordering future us? What is the value that should be ordering our future selves or our collective selves? And I I believe that there are values and ways of valuing that we can learn to define and even eventually measure um, that will tell us when we're making decisions that are good or bad for those areas of human existence. Well, I, but the thing that, it, so it works for an individual, yes. right, to think like that. But Jamie Dimon is never going to think outside of the box of now me. Uh, and so how do, and and Jamie Damon might might build a a wall around the now us future I'm sorry future us so how do we make this kind of philosophy and I think it's an amazing philosophy yeah. and it's it's a um, it, it applies it creates value for things that are not just monetary yeah. uh, um, for your children's future for society's future for things that you care about for mastering different things it's it's it makes sense. Right, like, right. Like no com- one disagrees. Like communism <laughs> yeah, on yeah. paper, right? <laughs> right, right, totally, totally. Um, the problem is, like communism on paper, yeah. once you put it into practice, you have, you know, I, I, my belief with capitalism is that, uh, is that we, with any, with all of these, from communism to capitalism to a million different things in between, is that um, there's always going to be someone that's going to take advantage of the system. Mm-hmm. And I, I guess the question is, is how do you implement this from a, societal perspective, I, I believe that you would have hundreds of millions of people that would be like, oh, this makes sense. I would do yeah. this. But you would have 607 that wouldn't. Yeah, totally. Well, I think it's, um, you know, I don't think it's by changing, I don't think it's entirely by changing people's minds. I mean, I think that happens gradually over time. But I, I don't imagine like, the goal cannot be imposing a value system upon people who do not naturally have that value system. Like, that's just tyranny. And, um, and that's sort of what bentoism is trying to solve for is trying to undo like the the unnecessary imposition of values of one on another so you know i think the long so um a book that really inspired me as I was writing this is the Thomas Kuhn book, Structure of Scientific Revolutions, which is like this analysis of how science has evolved over time. And at any given time, every, each field of science is operating within a paradigm that like this is how things work. You know, this this is the law of this. This is the law of that. Everything makes sense according to that universe. And then over time, you will discover enough anomalies, enough weird experiments that like don't work the way things are supposed to work that eventually someone has to create what Kuhn – 
invented the phrase a paradigm shift, a new way of seeing things. And the goal of a new paradigm is to make the things that don't make sense to help them make sense. Um, so that, but that only is like the start of a much harder process, right? So once the, the real work, the real work is then once you have this new paradigm, this new way of looking at the world that tries to make sense of it, then there is what Kuhn calls, quote, normal science, which is people trying to implement this, experimenting and discovering where this paradigm and the real world collide and like what is still true. So if I think about the shift of moral values into like collective values, I don't think that happens by more people coming to have the same moral values. I think that happens by more more of our moral values shifting into like a rational space to where why does Jamie Dimon make a choice that's positive for the environment? Because it's been demonstrated, you know, five ways from Sunday that this is like, this will produce better outcomes. And, and that, but we, we have to reach a point where we can really defend those things and where those things can be I don't root for the measurement of all things. Like that's not the kind of person I am at all. But I, I, I think that shifting those things that we know are important into a space where everyone can decide in support of them, not just those who believe in them, is really the only way that it, that, that happens. And I, I think that takes decades. You know, I, I think that's like a 30-year project is how I write about in the book that like 30 years from now, all the things I'm saying will seem really normal. And the idea that some nerd had to get on a podcast and explain this 30 years ago will be like, what? Like, this is, why did anyone have to say this? Why did anyone have to say this? To me, that is success. Um, but it, it, yeah, it's like we, we have to remove those moral judgments because moral judgments will always kind of like fracture us. And so how can you... What do you mean moral judgments will fracture us? Well, just that we're all going to believe different things and for, for rational, valid reasons. Like I, I'm, I'm not going to convince you to change your core value set and nor are you going to convince me to change mine and nor should we. Like the world's big enough and diverse enough that we should all be able to have our same values and still be able to coexist if like a few of the big things are done right. And, uh, and so... Yeah, I don't think it's about, so, you know, the way I think about this work is I'm like teaching people workshops, trying to show them what their bento is, trying to feel what it's like to put this in people's hands. Uh, I want to, I'm going to work with organizations to try to help them to define this. But I think there's a longer term project here, which is about researching, uh, looking at what existing organizations have done to try to measure impact or social cohesiveness or how do companies try to approximate sustainability and trying to look for what are the core building blocks that are, exist in all these ways that we're trying to measure and understand these things. So, but not to, just to push back a little bit yeah. um, and to kind of question this a little. So you talk a little bit about um, the fact that we used to have these kind of mom and pop stores on Main Street. Yeah. And then along come these malls and yeah. the mom and pop stores kind of go out of business and a few of them open up in the malls and then and then the TD banks of the world take over the malls and then all of a sudden now malls are not they're like these these dying spaceships yeah, yeah. they're i mean they're amazing to look at <laughs> yeah. in photos but they are literally it was fascinating driving here today uh down La Brea and all of these just empty stores store yeah. after store after store after store and that 6 months ago were there and and I, so what has, of course, done that is the internet retailers. Mm -hmm. And the internet retailers don't stop. They are like, a, they are a voracious beast like Amazon and so on that, that cannot just, they're insatiable. And, and so, sure, if, you, if you're teaching, if you're going around like teaching like a, a smaller company to kind of think in this way, uh, adding value in different ways, 
isn't that just going to be a business advantage for Jeff Bezos? He's not going to want to do that. Well, yeah. I mean, I don't want this to be like the feel-good indie rock hit. Like, <laughs> I, want, I want mainstream. I want to be mainstream. This isn't, you know, this is this isn't supposed to be. But how do you indie. convince the person who, um, you know, not just Jeff Bezos, Larry Page, just this week said that they're now going to get into like checking accounts. You know, like Amazon's doing healthcare. Like, it just it. There's nothing. There's talk of buying NFL teams and this, that, and the other. Like, there is. These are, it's like, it's almost like in the movie um, uh, with the little robot, uh, Wally, sure. where there's one company, literally there's one company on earth that runs everything and of course fucks it all up and we have to go live in spaceships. Uh, and aren't we kind of on that trajectory? Like, can we stop that? Can we stop an Amazon or a Google to from from becoming that? It's, you know, it's going to take political change. It's going to take a creative ideas about how antitrust should work. Um, I don't think the market is going to do that. You know, if we're waiting for the market to, to create that counter competition, I don't think it's going to. Um, you know, we're still early, like, we're kind of reaching like a moment of, in a way, kind of post geography, like, you know, why Why do these stores, why do local stores die? Well, because it's easier to go to our URL. Like, and why does why do we keep going back to Amazon? Well, it's just easy to go keep going back to the same place. It used to be that geography would at least force us to not get exactly what we wanted or to not, you know, go for all the same thing. Um, so, yeah, what happens in a world where that is no longer, uh, you know, a pressure point is, yeah, it does start to lead to very singular global things. It, it will take political change to do that. You know, I think about, I think about like, what is going to be in storefronts in 20 years? You know, like, I don't think everything's just going to be empty. Is it going to be something that you and I have never thought about before? Is it just going to all be internet brands like, you know, Instagram brands having single day pop-ups to sell t-shirts? Like what in the world, what is going to be there? And it's hard to imagine. Um, but, you know, people evolve, people surprise us. So I, I don't know. Is there... Um automation a problem in this world like at, at some point you know i mean what's what what's what's really fascinating from the election standpoint is you know i remember andrew yang saying he was going to run and had like a thousand followers on twitter he's just this week like had thrown parties because he got a million and like yeah. he's still in the race and other people who you you know if you'd have said a year ago oh andrew yang will be in the race and beto o'rourke won't you'd be like no fucking way like yeah, totally. he, but he he is and is there – do you believe that that that's going to be the solution, like a, a universal basic income and that, that we'll be like, okay, cool, we'll just deal with the Amazon because we get 30 grand a year from some machine somewhere? Or is society going to push back against that too? Yeah. Well, it's funny. I mean like just higher taxes seem like the answer to a lot of things. Oh, yeah, oh yes. You, you know, and it's funny like – yeah, well, where how will that change our, our how we emotionally feel towards these companies? Like, it could be great for for Amazon or whoever if they're paying tons in taxes because it's like people no longer start having keep having weird feelings about them. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, I, Andrew Yang is is great. You know, I, I'm I'm skeptical of the UBI. Uh, I feel like I feel like the answer in the age of financial maximization would of course be to just give people money. Mm. <laughs> just like seems, it seems like the easy thing to do. You know, I think the European structure of just providing a strong social safety net, which you could just imagine is just providing for everyone's now me needs as best as possible. And then sort of allowing society to exist on top of that, I, I think works pretty well. I mean, there's, 
I saw an article recently about how Europe is like a far more competitive marketplace than the U.S. because you don't have the large monopolies and there's you know a lot more dynamism that happens in their economies. The the top line GDP isn't as high, but guess what? Like that's the extra bit that we're we're squeezing out of society is to get that extra twenty percent, you know, to pay out and buybacks the richest people in the world, and that's what's starving us of so many of the other values that we need. I mean, I was recently like listening to. Several extremely wealthy people talk about how there are like trillions of dollars just sitting on the sidelines of the market right now uh, because these super wealth- wealthy people don't see investments that are good enough that are worth using their money for. Meanwhile, the world is burning, right? But the idea that we should use financial value to invest in non-financial value, the idea that money could be used to grow future prosperity in ways that aren't going to be economically measured is like unthinkable to us. That's like a missing synapse in our brain. But to me, the idea of of investing in money to create non-financial value to produce uh, a sustainable community, to you know, to grow the education levels of your people, whatever those things are, like of course that's the single best use of money there can be. But we've fallen under the spell that the only way money can be used is to produce a return that beats the S and P. And so the only ideas that are worth considering are ones that do that. And here we are, not broken. <laughs> it's interesting. I uh, uh, the that moment where you talk about how. For years, like when someone was sick, we like we thought the solution was to to bleed them out. Yeah, you know, like and if you were like super fancy, if you were like a hipster in Williamsburg, like they bleed you out with uh, a leech uh, with a leech. Yeah. Like yeah. you were cool if you had yeah. a leech, but like, but we were killing people. Like and yeah. we were and there was no people weren't washing doctors weren't washing their hands and they're sticking their finger in the and that's like just your, the best. W- yeah, that's just the best we knew how to do at the time. It, it, is the con the the current capitalistic world that we live in in this country are we is that the equivalent yeah i think so i th- i think we're i think i think a generation or two from now they're going to look at us and they're going to say wow i can't i can't believe they couldn't see what they were doing I, I can't i can't believe that they couldn't recognize they're all following this singular goal and just missing this whole other universe of possibilities and there's that stretch that stretch of a half a century where people weren't awake to it and I think that's something that the generations after us will be able to see. I think the you know the carbon emissions and the climate and climate change is going to make that seem very stark uh, for this period of time. And and yeah, but but what do you, you mean? Know, by, what do you mean by the climate emissions? Well, I mean just the fact that like you know we're just celebrating hitting record returns on the stock market while our CO two emissions are spiking and temperatures are rising and like our the end of life as we currently know it is like is happening and we're too busy celebrating over here to pay attention to the fire burning but we're not celebrating it's those 607 people who are yeah sure and what i think is so frustrating is that i mean look you and i will leave the studio and get in our cars and go home and like we're not necessarily picking up i guess you writing the book is your version of picking up a, a sign and standing on the street but like but I, I think what what I think needs to happen personally is that the the people in this you know we can easily pinpoint like you know the people who made this happen Roger Ailes and his cohort and so on but they the the people on the right have been have been t- told that that it's all about you know abortion and Immigrants and this, that, and the other, and they are continuing to vote against themselves from an economic standpoint. And until it's, I think one of two things happens: we keep going down this road where they continue to do that until those that generation no longer is here or able to vote or or whatever, um, or they kind of come to some realization and we change it sooner. 
Yeah, I mean, you know, Brexit's an interesting example of people very intentionally voting against their economic self-interest. You know, there they're voting for this interest of national identity, which is like a now us kind of future us value. But like that was an anti-economic decision. Completely, 1,000%. And so uh, to me, that's interesting. The trade war is also an anti-economic decision, you know, and I wonder if we're moving into a post-economic period of life, like we've just lived through the age of economics where all decisions were oriented around financial outcomes, that we maybe we've reached the limits of that. Trump is the is a gross character of that mindset where we can all really see the ugliness of it. Um, and and then we're just running into this wall where, where we're finding the limits of that. And so we move into a post-economic era where, you know, weather events are going to wipe away so much economic value in a second that the idea of growing and protecting economic wealth is going to seem a little less, you know, a little shakier than it does right now. And new kinds of values and new kinds of priorities are going to emerge. I think I think the world's going to force that to happen. My thinking is that if we have a, we can either have like a, a retreating mindset to that or try to hold on to what we can, or we can have a more of an expansive mindset with that. And we can imagine, okay, well, if that is the case, what should we be building towards? Like what, what should we be going towards? And, and, you know, I, I'm I'm 41. I, I think like me as a Gen Xer, like I just thought the institutions were strong, everything was going the right way. Like we can all just audition for the real world road rules challenge, and it's cool. <laughs> Nothing matters anymore. <laughs> Nothing matters. It's cool. It's on lock. And our institutions crumbled. We spent too much time building startups rather than supporting the institutions that got us here. And um, and now we're struggling. And so the we went with the flow. And we and we're, we're in a ditch, and we're like it's getting worse by the second. The generations below, the Generation Z especially, um, they're waking up to a world on fire. And if they have a plan, if they have a plan, if they have a destination, a notion of what success should be, other than what it is right now, like hundred percent, they can do it. One hundred percent, they can do it. And so, you know, a lot of the book I'm trying to to make the case towards the generations that will be in power in 20 to 30 years from now who are really going to have a lot of shit on their hands. Like now is the time where we can get ready for that. Now is the time where we can do research. We can uh, try to approximate how to make good or bad decisions based on these other areas of human existence. It will never be easy to make those kinds of choices, but can we make it less hard for the people who are going to be sitting in those seats making those decisions? Because, you know, we've fucked up our our choices. Oh, we, we totally. Well, right? we we fucked it up. Our our parents fucked it up more than anyone fucked it up. But we definitely fucked it up by not fixing because, it. Because because we're because listen, we resort to lazy choices. We could be selfish. All do these you still th- use like Amazon and things like that? No, I use Amazon. Do you have? Do you feel guilty? Uh, I mean, in general, in general, I just try to consume not not much, really. Period. Um, so I'd say my wife does most of the Amazon orders, but. Uh, That's it's like oh I don't have to I didn't kill them I just uh... yeah totally totally I mean I think you know I I you know I I live in this world I think a lot of my choices are are very much reflect these sorts of values other choices I make are probably hypocritical um, you know what I what I'm trying to do is live a life and really what I think the promise of the just sort of seeing things from a bentoist perspective is is to try to be self coherent to try to act try to always act in line with who I am and what I expect out of myself. And like we we can feel those flow states where we are self-coherent, um, but like how do you get there on a daily basis? How do you how do you actually know what that is for you? If we know that as people, then we can 
probably know that as groups. If we know that as groups, then maybe we can know it as societies. And if we have a picture of what that looks like, then maybe we can get off our asses and make that. Um, you know, I do go protest. Like I do go to the strikes. I, I, you know, I'm a supporter of Extinction Rebellion. Like I try, I'm trying to be active, um, you know, compared to, to what, you know, people in other nations do. I'm a poor imitator of someone that gives a shit. Um, but here I'm probably on the farther side of the spectrum of trying, but yeah, it's, it's not, it's not enough. Um, you know, you look for where that energy is going to be and, um, you know, it it really it it takes it takes moments for people to really to really look at things a, a different way. Uh, last few questions for you, and then we'll wrap up. Um, do you look at what like the Mark Zuckerbergs of the world are doing and worry about the decisions they're making? Where you know, there's someone who said to me recently, if Mark Zuckerberg really gave a shit about how his platform might be used to uh, to harm democracy and, and elections, he would bring that stock down to a dollar to fix it. But he doesn't. He cares mm. about the company. Mm. Um, uh, do you look at what these companies are doing, like the, the Facebooks of the world and the Twitters and so on, and think like, the, the, are they some of the most worrying people, you know, like the, the ones that keep you up at night? Or is it more the like... Not as much. I mean, it might, you know... Not, it's more the shareholders. Yeah, I think it's more it's more the macro expectations that they live that they live inside of. I mean, but there is you just come power and money become so protectionist, right? Like you have it and you don't want to let go of it. Even if you didn't want it, even if it's more than you need to like to lose it is is painful. And so I I view some of these things as like just kind of human in a way. Just like, oh, this is this is the shit we all find hard to do, except this is just on a level that's affecting one quarter of the planet. Mm-hmm. Um, so that certainly says, well, what kind of governance, what kind of governance <laughs> structure should we have to where it's not it's not built that way? Um, so I, you know, I I, I definitely. Uh, you know, I don't think singular control of an organization is a good idea, um, and I think that accountability to power is important. Uh, you know, I fight, if I think about the kinds of challenges that Twitter faces, like, and I think about the sense of who I get Jack Dorsey is as a CEO, you know, I feel like that's probably the right way to think about things, to try to be more methodical, to try to think in terms of systems, like erring towards free speech versus not feels probably the right thing to do. And, and now where there's like... Um, now where there's state-based actors as like these new threats and digital platforms sort of we're going to be asking them to protect us in different kinds of ways now too like it's uh it feels like shifting shifting sands it feels like the one of the biggest problems with with these companies is that the lack of oversight from the boards um you know to to borrow trump a a, a quote from trump like mark zuckerberg could go out onto fifth avenue shoot someone and the board (laughs) would be like but he, our our dividends have been great. You right. know, what's the price? What's yeah. the stock price? Yeah, how did you? How did the market react? Did they like it? Yeah, they loved it. Shows uh, leadership. Depends who he shot, I guess. Yeah. Um, yeah. All right, last question. What, uh, when you were researching the book, what was kind of like the most startling thing that you found, and at the same time, what was the most promising thing that you found? Um, the most startling thing I found was that moment of laying credit card debt over the flat wages. Like I just, I was searching, I don't know, I just had this thought of like, what, what is the relationship to those things? And then I like visually put the things together and just felt like, whoa, I feel like I just saw, I just saw how the game was rigged. Mm. Like the idea that, yeah, just make us borrow our raises. Just borrow, just borrow your raises. It's cool. You know? Yeah, that was and, startling. And that, 
I don't know, you know, uh, that that just struck me as like that, yeah, as as wild. Uh, the thing that I found most inspiring, um, you know, I, really, I, I'm a big believer in like I, 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 I'm still a believe in, believer in progressive change. I'm still a believer that. Um, you know, that we evolve according to like the best versions of what we know how to be. The, the, always, the question is, what knowledge do we lack that could help us for the better? Um, so f- for this, I was trying to imagine like, what could we know? What might, what new information might we learn that would allow us to just, just make much better choices, to like think very in a better way about the world? And this is where I came to this notion of self-interest and value. And yeah, I don't know if I look back at like the changes we've, the transitions we've gone through are hard. When the Joseph Lister invented how to sterilize surgery, it was like 30 years of people not believing him because if what he said was true, then that meant that all the doctors currently in power had like murdered lots of patients unintentionally. And we didn't want that to happen. Yeah. And like, imagine you're one of those doctors. You're like, yeah, no, we're not, we're, we're not admitting that paper. How's you know? the stock price look? Yeah, exactly. So <laughs> there's just like this human things, but you know, over time, over time, these things bear out. But they, but they take real effort. You know, the, the notion, the fallacy, I feel like, of the 80s, 90s, 2000s was there's just a general soft, gentle trend towards a utopian equality, everything okayness. And it's just not true. It's not true. That only happens if you fight for it. That only happens if you make it happen. And you can really, you're, you are most equipped to do that when you have a vision of what you're working towards. It's not just fuck this, but it's no, it should be more like this. And when people have stepped up in the right moments to express that in a way that people can hear it, I think that has an impact. And, yeah, I feel like we're at this. We are at this kind of point, this breaking point, and uh, and there's a world where kind of a Warren wins or something like that, and and we start to or whoever you know uh, Trump wins and we don't like. Um, but I do feel like that, that we're we're kind of reaching that inflection point, and if it doesn't happen this election or next election, autonomy comes along, and then it definitely happens. So, all right. So, thank you so much for chatting. Tell us every everyone where they can get the book and all that fun stuff. Yeah, the book's called "This Could Be Our Future: A Manifesto for a More Generous World." I'm Yancey. You can find me online at whystrickler.com. And I also made a site, bentoism.org, where you can go through the workshop experience of making your own bento, and you could sign up to go to an in-person thing, too, if you're interested. Great. Thanks so much for chatting, Yancey. This is fascinating. All right. Thanks, sir. Thanks to my guest today, Yancey Strickler. If you enjoyed this conversation, be sure to listen and subscribe to other great episodes of Inside the High with Nick Bilton, and they are all amazing episodes that everyone should go and listen to. You can find this on Apple Podcasts, Radio.com, or anywhere you get your podcasts. Don't forget to leave a review while you're there. If it's anything below five stars, don't bother leaving a review. Thanks to the folks at Cadence 13 for their production work, and thanks, of course, to you, the listener. I will see you all next week.